0: And now on Sunday nights, it's time to catch up with an old friend, the Reverend Tim Costello, retiring CEO of World Vision Australia. But before he joins us, he has chosen a song or two, and the first he's chosen is Van Morrison. Be Thou My Vision.
1: Be thou my vision, O Lord of
0: piece of music selected for us by our next guest on Sunday night. Well known to most of us, it's the retiring chief executive of World Vision Australia, the Reverend Tim Costello, who's taken the opportunity to reflect on his recent years and drawing on his lifetime in ministry has brought them together in a new book just released simply called Faith. Tim Costello, good to have you back on Sunday night.
1: Lovely to be with you. Thanks, John.
0: Over the years, we've had uh, reason to talk to you on an issue-by-issue basis, but what's interesting about this book is the issues are all there, but we get some idea of the personal context which has shaped your responses. So I'd like to start there, if we could. You are regarded as a man of faith. Now, that has a traditional church-based meaning connected to belief and orthodoxy and all of that. But this book is as much about giving that word faith meaning in terms of your role and function in the world. How do we get there?
1: So often I'm uh, asked about my views and uh, people will like or not like what I say and uh, will resonate or not resonate with my values. But very rarely do they ask, where do those views, where do those values come from? They don't just drop out of the sky. And uh, this book is uh, really bringing together the fact that they come from my faith. Not faith just in the profoundly religious sense, though it is that for me, but uh, a recognition that ultimately all humans trust something are loyal to something, believe something. Um, We know that whether it's love or hope or what the meaning of our life is, we can't ever empirically prove love and hope and meaning. We actually, by faith, trust that story, that ground that we plant our feet on. But the word is
0: somewhat problematic these days. I mean, you in the book recall an anecdote between two of my ABC colleagues, John Fain and (laughs) Red Simons, over this very concept of who you were.
1: Yeah, look, I was um, going to be on John Fain's uh, co-comp here, I think he calls it, of his conversation hour. That's a regular part of the program, and he and Red were doing their crossover chit-chat, Red's on the early morning show. What's coming up on your show, John? Well, I've got the Baptist preacher, Tim Costello. And uh, I remember Red Simon saying, don't call him that. Uh, I really liked him. He's not a preacher. And John said, well, you know, I like him, but that's what he is. He's a Baptist preacher. And Red sort of said, look, he's on about social justice and the poor. I don't like you saying he's a preacher. And uh, John saying, yeah, yeah, he's on about that, but he's a preacher. That's what he is. He's a Baptist preacher. They sort of agreed to disagree on what I was. So it's interesting to hear people debating, you know, your identity on air. But it it certainly made me reflect that people often uh, take my views, listen to them, but uh, sort of say, let's filter out all that religious stuff. He surely couldn't still be one of those, and that's embarrassing. So this book, Faith, is really uh, saying, well, actually, that's really right at the centre of who I am and uh, can't be separated from my views and values.
0: Well, let's start with that who you are question because in the book you do share that with us. You talk a little about your family and the growing up in your family and about your first profound religious experience. Just just want to take us through that journey?
1: So, yeah, I grew up in a family and I detail it, uh, the, the faith nuances between my father, very strong, loving, but authoritarian, very committed at the core, knew his Bible backwards, taught the New Testament uh, to students for decades in Greek. Uh, he, he had uh, learned Greek at university. So that memory of my father having his morning devotions, reading his New Testament in Greek, uh, is very strong. Um, and my mother, who came from what might be called the more liberal uh, side of the church, uh, for those who... No university Christian politics, there are always two groups, the Christian or Evangelical Union, my father's side, and the student Christian movement, SCM, Liberal, my mother's side. Those tensions are still there in the church. And uh, they really were the Sunni and Shia of the, uh, <laughs> the uh, Christian tribes. So when my parents met, dated and married, there was, there was really great shock about how would this mixed marriage actually work. And in many ways, my mother was open at the edges, accommodating of the world, uh, a, a, a Christian faith like my father, but um, uh, into Germaine Greer, reading Freud, going out to work. She had a university degree, which is a bit unusual for women of her generation. She's now 87. So I then grew up with this committed at the core and open at the edges sort of Christian faith, always in dialectical tension, but had profound religious experiences, that I describe in the book.
0: And this is really something that many people would hunger for. Uh, Some people have quite profound religious experiences but but sort of leave them... uh, At some point, they just sort of walk away from them. Uh, And few, like yourself... Experience them, absorb them into their stress, their, think them through, work them through. And it's not simply an isolated moment, but it's something that's becoming integrated into your life. Just walk us through that experience from it.
1: Well, uh, I was 17. I was on a student conference and um, went for a walk at night. It wasn't that cold. And I was suddenly trembling. And I was absolutely overwhelmed with uh, what I can only describe a presence that I experienced as a mixture of unconditional love and awe. And I remember the experience so profoundly because uh, I had this intimate connection to God, to nature, to a sense that I was not alone. That experience, and I've had other experiences too, that, that experience was quite Confirming, because um, as one you know, ancient uh, theologian put it, for those uh, without faith, no explanation ever suffices or satisfies. For those, for someone with faith, no explanation is needed. Actually, this book is saying I don't agree with o- either of those positions. I think people who don't have faith and are never satisfied actually do need to struggle with why there is this this experience of faith and it's shaped our culture and it's art and architecture. And uh, if we, if we see what's happening in immigration in Australia, we know that so many people who are arriving are profoundly religious. So the notion that we'll always be secular is probably not true. It's a demographic time bomb. They're having the biggest families and <laughs> equally Christians who have faith and say, you know, I don't need a reason. I do think uh, reason and thinking it through needs to temper faith, but that all comes out of, actual experiences of God, uh, such as I described, what I call God.
0: People as diverse as uh, former Melbourne Uni- University professor Max Charlesworth, philosopher, and uh, writers like Karen Armstrong, both talk about that transcendent experience, and, and both of them say that the problem is the moment you d- attempt to describe it, you're beginning to theologize. You're beginning mm. to put it in a box to categorise it, to build Mm. something out of it. And and that is both an advantage and a problem.
1: Absolutely. And I think it was Anselm, uh, uh, an ancient theologian, whose sort of proofs of God was God is the ultimate thing beyond human mind that we can think of, that we simply in the mind as we theologize, reason cannot go beyond simply doing that and it is that leap of faith. It is greater than anything the mind can conceive of, and that's the best way I can describe that that experience. I've tried to describe it, uh, theologize around it, but it's still beyond that, and that's what faith means, I think.
0: Most religious traditions have at their core some sort of experience, whether it's uh, Muhammad... Or, or Gautama the Buddha, uh, it 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 it's core to the the origins of that that faith experience. Yet you take an additional step. You say for me that experience is given real vitality through Christianity, through the life of Jesus.
1: Yeah, and look, I will be absolutely frank. If I was born in Iraq or Iran, there's 99% chance I'd be Muslim. So people can say it's context. That's why a Christian context, you're a Christian. but <clears throat> are, you,
0: are you relativizing the faith then? Are you saying that...
1: No, I I certainly believe that's sociologically perhaps true. Uh, But for me, having thought about that, having um, exposed myself in my World Vision work to people of different faith, uh, I certainly believe, though this will be heretical for some, that uh, the God of Abraham is also uh, the same God as Islam, Christianity, Judaism has – But the faith of Abraham or the children of Abraham isn't the same faith. I uh, think it is actually the same God we are trying to experience. So for me... um, So you're saying
0: there's something unique about the insights of Jesus?
1: I I believe that. I I believe I cannot explain that God experience without actually tying it to the person of Jesus, without understanding that in, in this person... God has encountered what it means to be human, to face evil, uh, injustice, to suffer and to live righteously, and I believe to rise again, that for me, that connection with the Jesus story is profound to that experience, that transcendent awe experience.
0: So it's both the historical life of Jesus and the theological readings of the meaning of that life.
1: It's both of those, and uh, it's uh, some might say, um, you know, uh, just a a preference, a choice, but I I call it a step of faith. uh, That if God has shown his face in the suffering of a Palestinian Jew, uh, that is a faith that actually has emboldened the way I live and believe and act and understand that evil may be faced and perhaps even conquered.
0: This understanding of the faith, as it developed for you, has led you to where you are now. But you do note a couple of important experiences on the way which push you into reading that faith in a certain way. And one of them is a time you spent that not many know about as a theological student in Switzerland.
1: That was a wonderful experience. It was my first international experience. We had people from 30 different cultures, uh, a lot of Europeans but Africans and uh, from a number of African countries and Indonesians. uh, And um, I describe in the book just the insight I had that you never really understand your own faith until you step outside your culture. And uh, stepping outside the culture, middle into a Christian seminary, but international, uh, really pushed uh, me out of the bubble. Yes, of, where English uh, wasn't they. the first language. <laughs> English, I had to learn German, and um, you start to understand that... Uh, Every translation, even of the Bible, is at the same time an interpretation because this is what you're doing constantly out of your own language zone. Even though the seminary was uh, English-speaking, um, it was in Switzerland, in the German-speaking part of Switzerland. I encountered uh, people, and I describe uh, the Italians who uh, were training to be Baptist ministers and voted communist. Now, that shocked me because I knew good Bible-believing Christians voted conservative. God was in heaven. Bob Menzies had been in the lodge in my childhood and that was the given order. They believed that only communism, Berlinger, soft communism, not Stalinist, uh, would clean up the corruption they saw in Italy between Mafiosa and Christian Democrats. I discovered as a teetotaling Baptist at that point that uh, most European Baptists drank alcohol. Many smoked. Uh, I thought that, that it was in the Bible not yes. to do those things till then.
0: They even went dancing.
1: And they <laughs> danced, exactly.
0: The other thing that comes out of there, and we're alluding to it, is uh, it struck me as, as a terrific example that something that is now troubling the world, you get an intimation of then, and it's deep cultural differences about the way you perceive the way in which the world works and you, mm-hmm. you point the difference between a sort of Mediterranean culture and a Germanic culture if you like
1: this this was very striking um, in exams they would start the exam but it was an honesty system the lecturer would go out because we're all fine Christians studying for Christian ministry so no one would cheat and the Italians would all start in Italian, sharing answers, and we Anglos and Germanics were outraged and reported it to the professor, and the Italians were shocked. They said, what did you do that for? And we called it cheating. They said, no, 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 we were helping the weaker students. This is Christian solidarity. (laughs) And I reflect on how uh, many cultures like ours in Western Europe, North Western Europe, Australia, are contract societies, we keep the contract, you don't cheat, how most of the rest of the world, including southern Europeans, are clan societies. It's about solidarity and family and helping the tribe and why would you trust uh, people who are in power because there's a contract. They'll just look after their own their own clan and family anyway. And I started to reflect on this, which has been profoundly important for my World Vision work, back there in the 1980s in theological College in Zurich, Switzerland.
0: You're also a lawyer, and some have said that that very difference you've articulated there is something that came essentially, was developed to its most sophisticated uh, idea out of the Greco-Roman Judeo-Christian tradition, where law became not something necessarily related to doing the right thing by your clan or tribe, but universalized.
1: Mm, mm. So I I think uh, the great gift of um, the Hebrew Scriptures and the Jewish faith was this uh, commitment to justice that included not just the in-group, the Jews, the chosen, but the stranger, the widow, the orphan. In fact, uh, we hear, love thy neighbour in Scripture, love God, love thy neighbour, But 29 times we hear love the stranger because God's face is shown in the stranger, the person who's not Jewish. And there is this developing notion that justice applies to them, the out group, as much as it applies to the in group. And uh, this is a transcendent notion that leads to the rule of law, to universal human rights, to uh, impartiality and justice being blind which we continue to struggle with today.
0: Hmm. I mean, even if we go to the United Nations today, over the last decade, we've heard arguments about whether the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is in fact universal, whether there are not particular uh, sets of human rights which apply to distinct cultures and read in different ways. So the issue is still a lively one, even though it, it, it seemed to many people that it was settled post-World War II and fixing up the devastation post that. It's something that, that continues to be at the cutting edge of cultural difference, cultural difficulty.
1: Absolutely. This this is one of the reasons the Millennium Development Goals, where 200 nations signed up to to halve global poverty, was so breathtaking because uh, if you started with just abstract human rights, the West divided on individual rights, freedom of expression, freedom of certainly religion, religion, And uh, the East would always go for collective rights, you know, the right to have a house, the right to have a job, the right of solidarity of the dominant clan, if you like. The Millennium Development Goals were concrete, not abstract. They just said, let's halve the number of hungry people, the number of women dying in, in birth. Because the UN always separates around which rights are really universal and which ones you privilege coming out of, and we know this in Asia, that notion of solidarity and avoiding humiliation rather than just the individual right to be protected almost absolutely.
0: You're on Sunday nights on ABC Radio, around Australia, through Radio Australia and via the web to the world. Our guest is the Reverend Tim Costello, retiring chief executive of World Vision Australia, uh, Tim, we had a, a piece of music to start with. Let, let's have another piece of, of music now. But uh, just while we're lining it up, uh, just tell us why you decided to, uh, to to shift roles in World Vision. What what, what are you moving to?
1: So I'm now uh, starting the 2nd of November, I'm going to be the uh, chief advocate. And um, we've appointed um, a wonderful woman, Claire Rogers, to be the uh, The CEO and um, I've been CEO nearly 14 years, and it's extraordinary responsibility with a budget of nearly 400 million and 500 staff. uh, Extraordinary management detail. I'm staggered I've managed to do it 14 years because management's certainly not my forte. So this comes as sort of a a sweet release to do a role that I actually love because I'm passionate about World Vision's transformative work and the hope it gives. So, in a nutshell, it feels like this is the fun, not the slog for me, and I'm very, very happy to both hand over and report to a new CEO.
0: Reverend Tim Costello, on Sunday night's, I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say all the things that I should say. Say them loud, who say them clear for the whole You're on Sunday nights on ABC Radio. John Cleary with you. That piece of music selected by our guest, Tim Costello, retiring chief executive of World Vision Australia. Tim, shortly I want to talk about some of the things you've drawn out of that World Vision experience, but I want to go to another place in your book now, and it's it's the the other end of that intimate engagement with faith and life. It's it's the ultimate big question stuff. I mean, we had, and you refer to it, uh, recently on ABC television, people like Professor Brian Cox, uh, drawing on the metaphysical wonders of the universe, as this is a, a, a satisfactory way of approaching ultimate meaning. And, and You speak with some admiration about Brian Cox and other scientists, but you say it's not sufficient, mm. that, that cosmology takes us only so far. But it is a big question in the, over the last couple of weeks, even on this program with ABC Science Week just a, a few weeks ago, we've, we've discussed these questions. How do you come to terms with these big ultimate questions? That, that people these days saying, well, God's no longer the default position. Science is perfectly adequate. Thank you
1: yeah look, I admire Brian Cox, but I find his metaphysical uh, if you like purpose answer at the end unsatisfying, which is uh, uh, what physics has taught us is that we are insignificant and we are in in the universe with billions of planets and galaxies, and uh, we have climbed the ladder where our great achievement is to know our insignificance. Now, I think that uh, can be satisfying for some, but it's not enough for me. I don't think it's enough for impoverished uh, you know, millions, nearly a billion that go to bed hungry uh, each night. It doesn't um, tell
0: you what to do with your life.
1: Exactly. It doesn't uh, answer the purpose, vocation questions, which are the, you know, all religion really is, is trying to answer the permanently recurring questions. Who am I? Uh, What should I do? How do I know good and evil? And uh, that metaphysical answer of climbing to realize their insignificance is an answer, but not satisfying enough. I don't see a conflict between faith and science. Uh, I personally believe because of three things, being that even when we can analyze everything that's in the universe and everything in the most complex thing in our bodies called the human brain, all the chemical and electrical uh, interchanges and impulses. uh, Even if we can map all those, we are still not any closer to consciousness and mind and how that mind points us to being. Being, which is different to simply uh, saying we can explain the Big Bang And I'm quite happy with all of that scientific discovery, but how we still uh, have existence, that out of just atoms, non-existence, existence somehow, which is mind and consciousness and being arises. That, for me, uh, is why I still believe that there is being, that there is consciousness. I think I say in the book, there are these unspeakable moments of joy. Where do they come from? Indescribable and being consciousness joy aren't opposed to science but for me they go right to the heart of faith and something deeper
0: there are scientists who would share your views on many of those questions some of them quite religious there are even those who've taken up the the argument from a scientific point of view uh, such as even uh, the Richard Dawkins of this world, uh, whose selfish gene uh, explanation really is dealing with a theological question, and that's the theological question of original sin. So there are scientists who are saying, no, you can draw metaphysical rationales out of science if you just understand what the science does to us.
1: Yeah, look, I think the selfish gene uh, really raises the question of um, determinism. If... We are endlessly replicating cells. To what extent is there free will involved? Uh, Are we responsible for our behavior? Is there really freedom in choices between good and evil? I think that's a a very interesting discussion. That's where, for me, being that actually allows real freedom. I say in the book, the rabbis, in their creation story in Genesis 1, say that uh, in the beginning was only God – God, to create, had to withdraw, had to sacrifice, had to create space, which was an act of love to allow space for other being, real existence, that is conscious, that has real freedom. So there are certainly very many metaphysical uh, debates that come out of even the selfish gene.
0: Our guest on Sunday night, the Reverend Tim Costello. Tim, I'd now like to talk about some of the the meaning you've gained out of your experience and the principles you've 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 put into place in your years with World Vision. And I'd like to start with a poem you quote in the in the book from Seamus Heaney. History says, "Don't hope on this side of the grave," but then once in a lifetime the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme.
1: Yeah, uh, the book I wrote before Faith was Hope and so now I guess I've got to finish the trilogy and write on love, although my wife says I don't know enough about it. Uh, But uh, that poem could easily have gone in the Hope book, Um, but it's also a faith statement. The expression of that, you know, from Martin Luther King, who actually was quoting someone else, was uh, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it moves toward justice. And there are moments when history and justice actually rhyme. There are moments when uh, the faith that there can be what I call the the reign of God, heaven and earth meet. Uh, the lion lies down with the lamb, the child who uh, uh, has been denied the basics actually is given peace, security, and enough calories and clean water. So um, that poem that in history there are these moments uh, is actually consistent with what I believe uh, was the message of Jesus, that uh, this reign of God, thy will uh, be done on earth as it is in heaven. connoting that in heaven there is that safety for that child, that that rule of peace, uh, dignity for all. Um,
0: You're also daring to suggest that this is really the only way forward for the church. In an age of disbelief, or at least non-belief as the default position, the only way forward is a practical exercise of love.
1: Absolutely. I I feel the... uh, church, and I reflect on this, uh, why it spread so fast in those first 300 years of of persecution under Roman emperors until Constantine, was because its signature was love. uh, Those first Christians uh, welcomed slaves, uh, unthinkable, into their midst as equals. They ran schools and Hospitals, what we'd call hospitals back then for not just Christians but for their pagan friends. They cared for the poor. So much so, and I quote this at a Roman uh, Caesar who's not a Christian, says they're shaming us. This is why it's spreading. We've got to do something because these Christians have this novel idea that God's image is even in the slave, the woman, the uh, the sick, the poor.
0: Is this part of something that the church has to recover? That for perhaps the past 500 years, post the Reformation, to a large extent that the church, uh, having a, a sort of primal place in civil society, has been able to argue about purity of belief, correct doctrine, orthodoxy, mm. that that in some ways that's moved it further and further and further or a, away from... The experience of ordinary people. And the church, if it's to survive, has to re-engage. It has to become practical. Each uh, love has to be practical rather than sort of romantic. Jesus is, I'm in love with Jesus, that's enough for me. It has to be expressed in another way.
1: Yeah, I think what happened was that uh, faith and living at that out in love moved to belief in creeds and arguing over the, the propositions, uh, it moved in certainly uh, Europe, um, less so in Australia, to the church being the chaplain to power, the, the one that actually had privileges in the society that uh, really turned its head away from that radical mission of Jesus announcing to poor Galilean uh, serf farmers that God's kingdom, God's love, their ability to even forgive their enemies and rise above their hate had begun now. And uh, I think uh, in this age of non-belief, although I'm, I'm, I'm struck by how profound uh, the spirituality rising without religion and uh, – The and SBNR category – I'm struck by this movement, and I I say in this book, I I suspect it's a, a reaction to repressive secularism and even to rationalism that says, you know, we've got the answers, humans have to live by faith, uh, even very, very intelligent, rational humans. I think uh, that's what we're seeing in the rise of these movements as the church. Traditional structures often s- are seen to decline.
0: But that's that's an engaged faith, which which takes us to, to World Vision in a way, in that you've come out of a Baptist church required as a, as a, a minister in that church to preserve the orthodoxy of the faith. Uh, you've moved into World Vision, which is an organisation principally concerned with action, with faith in action, not preserving the orthodoxies or disputing the orthodoxies. It's just saying, well, that's all very well but, and the but has to be seen in committed, concerted action.
1: Mm. One of the uh, profound early experiences I had in World Vision was responding to um, an earthquake in northwest Pakistan where uh, over... uh And 100,000 people died. And it came six months after the tsunami where there was such an outpouring of generosity. It was just magnificent. But we couldn't raise a dollar because it was northwest Pakistan. It was where al-Qaeda recruits and, um, well, they're Muslims and not our problem. And no foreigners died Uh, in the tsunami. Australians died and we were absolutely touched. And I remember the uh, mullahs uh, thanking me that World Vision had come when so many others uh, had ignored them, and saying, but why, as a Christian organisation, are you here? We are Muslim. We're so glad you've come. No one else did, but why? And uh, me saying, because Jesus didn't say, just love Christians. And I remember the tears in their eyes, uh, just that profound, simple, early church, uh, I think, authentic idea, and I think that's why Faith in Action, which is World Vision, has been right at the heart of so much of my work for the last fourteen years.
0: Let me bring you back to Australia and uh, yeah, just the way we are as a society at the moment. Because your book brings us right up to date. It it covers the uh, the way in which business has been uh, dealing with things over the last uh, twenty to thirty years, and perhaps the the idea of the market having free reign is is coming to a, to an end with the uh, recent disclosures about. Uh, business, Salting away things at the Virgin Islands and other things. Mm. that, And that really brings us to a hinge point in the way our body, body politic is now treating debates. Uh, and you sense that there is a, perhaps a moment of change upon us.
1: Yeah, I, I think um, uh, people are very tired of technocrats uh, talking productivity and efficiency and fiscal measures and tax policy. Uh, you know, even 40, 50 years ago, you would hear poets and philosophers and theologians, uh, not technocrats. And I I say that uh, we actually aren't able to frame the, the deepest longings of the human heart and the meaning questions often in debate we have this nonsense that there's some natural entity that existed in the wild in nature called the free market and government mustn't interfere with it. Uh, The free market only exists because there is government. Government makes the rules. It decides what you can own and what the laws of bankruptcy are and uh, what assets uh, can be traded. And there isn't a free market if uh, it's all monopoly without that government creation. I think there is a growing sense that um, this sort of uh, fictitious debate about its, you know, either uh, government or free market and the level of regulation. Uh, we know those who write the rules uh, in government actually get the best of the free market and those who advocate for it loudest are those who are winning in it <laughs> over because they actually had disproportionate power to write the rules. Mm-hmm. But that, that aside, I think people are actually recognising, and uh, particularly when it comes to climate change, uh, in my biblical language, creation care, that... A metaphysical connection to the earth, a, a sense of spirituality has to be recovered if we're going to actually deal with this great challenge of climate change. Free market can't, can't simply deal with that. Yes, it's, it's massive market failure in one sense.
0: Uh, yet we, we're in a society where politicians, and uh, particularly those who have and own a spiritual religious position, are still trapped in this binary dialogue. Uh, either, you know, you're in favour of one side and it's the free market rules because, you know, God says it's all about individuals and individual salvation and the other side says, no, 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 it's, it's about uh, other things it's about the the poor and the marginalised. We're still trapped in that at the top level. At, at, hmm. at the ground level, that debate's shifting, but at the top, we still seem, even this week, to be trapped in that same debate.
1: Look, I agree. I, I think... Um One of the sad things for politicians in Australia is that uh, they're often told, don't talk about your religious faith. They'll think you're a nutter. (laughs) And um, I think politicians, therefore, talk often in technocratic, political, adversarial language. And we say, well, where are the values? Where's the faith? Where's the humanity? Where's uh, something that actually, because you are our leaders, will inspire us and show us that you have a, a deeper sense of what this is about. Sometimes those politicians can't because they have that binary view that you described. You know, faith is just a private matter. Kick God upstairs. There's, faith shouldn't be discussed in the marketplace. That's the Red Simons-John Fain interchange. Just talk about values because it's all secular and neutral and we're embarrassed. But I think that's a huge loss. I think that's a profound loss.
0: Tim Costello, we're almost out of time, but you, you did allude to the fact that the the next book has to be uh, termed love. I had an interesting conversation a few days ago and uh, some of the sort of material we're talking about came up and the, the person I was talking to expressed it in terms of a human hunger. And the human hunger is expressed in two ways. In a material way, we need food. But in another sense, we need Love, love mm. and food are the great answers to the hunger. Mm. So there is a sense in which uh, that next book, love, is a natural extension of of the, uh, the, the activity of feeding the masses or mm. providing food for my neighbour.
1: One of the greatest insights I've had in World Vision work is the... Hardware, the water wells, the schools we build, the hospitals and the health clinics are incredibly important, but they're not nearly as important as the software, which is Well Vision staff being there, not just in disaster, but in poverty and listening and staying and forming mutual friendships and saying there is solidarity and love. We are here. That software is profoundly important to development work. It's about love. In fact, I would say that uh, we are the love industry. It is government, which is about power and who gets what and does what. There's business which is about profit, and if you don't make it, you're out of business. <laughs> and uh, the world vision sector with a lot of others is the love sector. Uh, that actually, I think is what is so profoundly important for human meaning. That's one of the things one of the reasons I want to finish this trilogy of hope, faith and love.
0: Tim Costello, it's been great to uh, to take us along this part of the journey. Thanks so much for joining us on Sunday night.
1: A pleasure. to live so God can use you
0: anywhere along anytime
1: you ought to